We have tons of different personalities in this room, tons of different ways to engage the culture, and that's been the case for all of history. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. We love to come together every week to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Um, Some of you might know the new Black Panther movie just released. Anybody seen the movie yet? This illustration is going to go great. Okay, awesome. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, the new Black Panther movie was based on the original Black Panther movie that came out in 2018. Any of you see that one? Okay, a few more hands. It's like won all kinds of awards, set all kinds of records, grossed over a billion dollars for that money tree that is more commonly known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the story of that original Black Panther movie revolves around an African nation called Wakanda. And to the outside world, Wakanda looks like just another third world country made up of subsistence farmers struggling to get by. But little does the world know that's just an act because beneath the surface and behind the scenes, the Wakandans have discovered this incredible metal called vibranium that allows them to advance technologically far beyond the rest of the world. And so, um, as they do, the kingdom of Wakanda kind of looks at this treasure that they have found, this vibranium and all the incredible abilities that it gives them, and they ask this fundamental question. When they look at their treasure, and then they look at the corruption, the brokenness, and the division of the world, they ask this fundamental question that drives the story. What is our responsibility? What is our responsibility? Like, on the one hand, is our responsibility to protect ourselves and to protect the purity of our culture? The king of Wakanda, he leads the nation to hide their treasure from the rest of the world, to stay disguised as a third world country, to protect what they have so that their treasure, their people, their culture, their heritage will not be corrupted. Or, on the other hand, is their responsibility to take that treasure to the places around them that could use it and to take it into the even the messy and the broken and the corrupted places of the world. And so the movie kind of traces the conflict of these two ideas. This idea over here that says we have to step into the messiness of the world and this idea over here that says, no, we have to protect the purity of what we have. As a kingdom with a unique kind of power and a unique kind of king, how do we engage with the world around us? And in case you haven't picked up on it yet, this is our story too, isn't it? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then you are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter three. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, even though as followers of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven, this kingdom of heaven that we're a part of doesn't exist far away, distant, and removed from the pain of the world around us. We're actually citizens of this world too. That's why Jesus taught his followers to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, the main message that Jesus preached was that the kingdom of heaven had come to earth through him and his followers. Mark chapter one, this is Jesus's sermon. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
So as citizens of another world, as followers of another king, this is the question we wanna ask this morning. What is our responsibility to the world around us? We're in this series, like Kyle said, called Hold It Together, where we're taking these tensions that we deal with in the life of faith, where we hold two things, two ideas, two truths that seem to be in conflict with one another, and yet we're called to hold them both in tandem and to walk faithfully in the tension. And so we've talked about the tensions between grace and truth and God's goodness and human suffering and trusting and trying. And today, we're talking about the relationship between Christ and culture, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of earth. What is our responsibility? And with me this morning is Mr. Brad Campbell, our newest worship minister here on staff. Brad's gonna help us explore these ideas. I know it looks like we planned to match. We did not, that was an accident. Um, Brad's wife, Allison, just led us in worship though. We're so excited they're here. So. Brad, as we dive into this conversation about Christ and culture, it's probably helpful right off the bat just to define our terms. What do we mean when we talk about Christ and culture? Right. First of all, good morning. I'm Brad. Nice to meet all of you guys. Uh, I just want to say it's just an incredible opportunity to be up here to talk about this tension, right? Like this is a tension to be managed, not a problem to be solved. And I think that we're going to find that more and more as we journey into this conversation. I also want to go on and just clearly outline what we're not going to do in this time. In this time, we're not going to tell you how to vote or who you should vote for or how you should spend your time or who you should spend it with or how you should spend your money or where or where not you should go eat or to what movies you should go to. We don't think that that's our job necessarily. We think that our job up here in this time is to begin a conversation and then to put a semicolon after it or a comma after it, not to end a conversation and say, there's a one size fits all to faith because I don't think that Luke or I believe that that's true because each of us is created uniquely in the image of God with a certain set of gifts and skill sets and abilities and specific callings there too. So um, we are gonna dive in headfirst. What is Christ? This may seem like a really stupid question to ask, right? Like considering that we're a Christian church that praises the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit three in one. Maybe it may seem on the surface like a dumb question to ask, what is Christ? But I think it's crucial for us to answer this question well in order to have a good conversation about the relationship between Christ and another thing. So believe it or not, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not like Joseph Christ and Mary Christ get together and they have a baby Jesus Christ. No, actually Christ is kind of this New Testament term that uh, it takes an Old Testament idea of Messiah and translates it into a different language as Christ. But what it means is it's this person that descends from a certain lineage that is going to bring restoration between God and God's people. I think we read throughout the whole Old Testament that there's this kind of broken relationship. God is continually pursuing Israel and his people to bring them back to him in some way. So this Christ figure restores the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth in some kind of way. And in 2 Samuel chapter seven, uh, God actually makes a promise to David, King David, and he says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And as the story continues, as I'm sure we're all aware, uh, the overwhelmingly loud answer to the question, what is Christ, is this, God becoming human. Which brings us to our second question, the more intimidating question. What is culture? So culture uh, can be defined simply as just a set of things, right? A set of assumptions. It's what human beings make of the world, ultimately. Culture is stories and habits and pictures and ways of relating to one another. It's value systems. It's art. It's music. It's the ways that we talk and converse and debate and disagree and agree and find grace with one another. Culture is all of these things and so much more. Right? In fact, Jesus himself comes to us in the incarnation uh, in a specific culture. He comes to us in the form of a first century Jew, which I don't know if you've read Leviticus, but it comes with its own like sets of rituals and habits and how you navigate and have conversations with other people, what you can eat, what you can't eat. So Jesus himself is enculturated in some kind of way. I, th- I think a lot of time, we as Christians have a really difficult time talking about culture because it's the water that we swim in. It's like the prime example of a fish swimming up to another fish and saying, how's the water? Only to get the response, what's water, right? So uh, I think since it's the water that we're swimming in, we need to be careful about how we talk about it. And we need to be really intentional about the ways that we enter into the tension and the conversation. And again, recognize that it's not It's not a problem to be solved. It's a tension to be managed because ultimately we have two identities, right? On one hand, we have the identity of being a child of God. In the kingdom of Christ, we have these things that we uphold. We believe that Jesus, uh, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And at the same time, we live with another identity in culture and a unique time and space bound event that we share together, right? And in this particular moment in Hendricks County, Indiana, the year of our Lord, 2022. So, so what do we do, right? Like what's our responsibility? What's our purpose in the world? And I think that this is not just a theoretical question, but I also don't think it's a question that we can answer for you guys, right? Like We all have the gift and ability to discern the voice of God and our calling, but it does affect everything that we do in this world. It should affect what we value, how we vote, who we spend our time with, how we budget, where we decide or not decide to go to school, uh, what we do with our money, and in an increasingly technological world, what we do with this, right? And how we spend our time in front of a screen, social media, who we call, who we text, what apps we engage with. These are all of the things that are kind of at this tension, right, Luke? So as people who are existing with two identities, kind of this tension between Christ and culture, 
what is our responsibility and what's our purpose in the yeah. world? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a lot of different ways to think about this relationship between Christ and culture that we do have these two identities. We're called to be ambassadors of heaven here on earth. And yet a lot of us in this room, we would all kind of engage the world differently just in terms of how we live. And for a lot of you, your opinion about the culture or the specific way that you engage with the world around you is a lot of it's really just based on kind of how you grew up and what your natural personality is in terms of what your natural inclination is. Some of you in the room right now are fighters by nature and some of you are fixers by nature some of you are pastors at heart and you just want to love people and some of you are prophets at heart and you want to speak truth to power right and and some of you naturally resonate with Paul's statement and encouragement in first Thessalonians chapter 4 when Paul says make it your ambition to lead a quiet life like you should mind your own business and other on the other hand some of you resonate deeply with the prophet jeremiah when he says in jeremiah chapter 20 like his word is in my heart like a fire it's a fire shut up in my bones i'm weary of holding it in i just can't do it right we have tons of different personalities in this room tons of different ways to engage the culture so across the spectrum we all live very very differently and that's been the case for all of history. It was that way in Jesus's day too. Brad, you did a good job of reminding us that Jesus comes to us in a specific culture. He lived in first century Palestine. Jesus was a Jew among other Jews who rightly believed that they were God's chosen people and they were waiting for this Messiah, this Christ, this King who was gonna come and restore God's kingdom on earth. And even in Jesus's day, as they were asking this this same question about, hey, we're citizens of one kingdom living in another kingdom because the Roman Empire is subjugating us, so how do we function in the world? There were four main groups in Jesus's day who answered this question in four different ways. And if you read through the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, you'll see Jesus in with these various groups. On the one hand over here, there were the Essenes. And the Essenes basically thought, hey, listen, the world is so messed up. We're getting out of here. We're gonna go do our own thing in the desert. Good luck with that, y'all. And then on the other hand, there were the Zealots. And the Zealots said, no, we're not just gonna retreat. We're gonna train, like we're gonna fight. We're gonna use violence to overthrow Roman rule by force and to bring God's kingdom that way. Then there were the Pharisees. And you probably have heard a lot about the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a pretty bad rap, but that's just not fair, you see. <laughs> the Pharisees, they, they didn't actually try to retreat from the culture. Like they were, they were in the culture. They were normal, average, middle-class working people who wanted to take holiness seriously. They wanted to follow God well with purity even in the midst of the compromise and the corruption all around them. And then over on the other end of the spectrum, there were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were like, well, when in Rome, you know, and so they decided to just cozy up to the cultural elites of, the, of their day, the influencers, work within the system, compromise a little bit if you have to, so that they wouldn't lose their positions of power. There's a whole spectrum of approaches. So what's your natural inclination? Where do you fall? Do you more naturally retreat from the culture? or fight against the culture, or stay pure within the culture, or become part of the culture. And underneath all of these is just that question, what is our responsibility? And another way we could ask the question would be, where do we draw the line? Like how far can we go and still be faithful? Now my guess is, as we've had this conversation about Christ and culture, a lot of you have had a line pop into your head that, that we've been told that as followers of Jesus, it's our job to be in the world, but not of the world. 
And that line is drawn from Jesus's prayer for his disciples in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying this for his followers. He's talking to the Father, and here's what Jesus says. He says, God, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world, but my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So, in the world but not of the world. So in terms then of how we engage with the world around us, which end of that spectrum do you fall more naturally on? Like there are some of you who fall more naturally to the in the world side of things and others of you who fall more naturally into the not of the world side of things. Over here on the in the world side of the spectrum, there's really solid biblical basis for this. After all, we serve Jesus who stepped down out of heaven and came into a messed up world to be with us messed up people. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners who hung out with people nobody else would hang out with. The most persistent accusation against Jesus during his ministry was this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We just read it in John chapter 17. Jesus prayed that we, his followers, would not be taken out of the world. Jesus wants us in the world. Paul was one of those early followers of Jesus. He wrote much of our New Testament and scripture. And Paul talks about just how far he's willing to go to be in the world where the people are. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter nine about building a bridge with people. He says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. Paul says, I'm gonna be in the world where the people are. I can remember growing up as a kid, my uncle taking me to the bar. Not because he was gonna get drunk, but because his friend was getting drunk. And he's not gonna go get a drunk alone, my uncle said. He's in a hard time, he's in a desperate situation. He's about to do something dumb. We might as well be there with him. And so we went to the bar and we hung out and we played pool and we built relationships and we stayed there till late in the night when we'd rather be asleep. And then when the night was over, we drove him home because he couldn't drive himself. He had this attitude of saying, I'm gonna do whatever it takes. Anything short of sin to reach the lost, we're gonna be in the world. Now, the danger on this end of the spectrum is that sometimes you can swing the pendulum so far into the world that you become a cultural chameleon. And you kind of just look like everybody else around you. You eat the same way, drink the same way, spend your money the same way, talk the same way, dress the same way. And so that when people look at your life, I mean, why would they wanna follow Jesus? They don't see a compelling alternative. You're just like everybody else. Now, some of you more naturally gravitate toward the other end of the spectrum, the not of the world end of the spectrum. And again, there's really solid biblical basis for this. Uh, Jesus said that, um, that, that we are not to be taken out of the world. He also said that we are not of the world, even as he is not of the world. Peter, who is one of Jesus's disciples, says that we are strangers here. We are exiles in a foreign land. We are citizens of another kingdom. We are loyal to a different king. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes to the church and he tells them who they are. This is your identity, by the way. He says, you are a chosen people. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are different. And so, yes, Paul does say that he will become all things to all people so that by all possible means he might win some. He does say he will be in the world. And yet he also says in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. He says in Ephesians chapter four, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He says in Philippians chapter two that we are to be children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. If you are a person this morning who says Jesus is Lord, that means that you serve a different king. And that means that you have a fundamentally different value system in how you approach your voting and your career and retirement and sexual ethics and relationships and finances, you're gonna be different than everybody else. I can remember as a kid, my, my parents chose to homeschool me for the first few years of my education. They wanted to be the primary disciple-making influences in my life. Later on, a few years later, when I did go to public school, my class started reading this new book that came out. This book was, it was the hot new thing. It was all the rage. We read the first couple chapters of the book and I was absolutely hooked. I was in it, but then... My parents called the school. They said, we don't want our kid exposed to that. And, and right or wrong, that's not for us to discuss right now, but that was the first time in my life that it clicked for me and I realized, oh, I'm different than my friends. We have a fundamentally different value system than they do. Now, of course, the danger over here on the not of the world end of the spectrum is that we can retreat so far away from the culture that we lose relationships with the people who need what we have. And we can become so disconnected that we lose our missional heartbeat and we fail to establish any common ground with the real world. So help us here, Brad. We've got this spectrum. And I guess the question is still, what is our responsibility? Like, where do we draw the line? We're just going to keep passing that question back and forth to each other for the next few minutes. Uh, You know, I think that that's just a really hard question for all of us to answer. I think we've all kind of wrestled with that tension. And I think for us to engage toward an answer of that question, we have to talk about sheep farming in Scotland, okay? So sheep farming in Scotland. I don't know if there are any experts in the room, if there's any, I don't know, a sheepatologist or something uh, in our midst. But um, I am heard, I have heard that it is uh, incredibly difficult to like keep sheep, right? It's, a, it's, in, it's incredibly difficult to put a fence around sheep. And after centuries and decades of uh, sheep farming, Scottish people have figured out that there are two reasons that it's difficult to put fence around sheep. First, sheep just don't like being fenced in, plain and simple. They get really anxious. They get hard to work with. And I don't know if you've ever been around like an anxious herd of animals or sheep, but they like are unpredictable. Uh, and so that's the first answer. The second answer is because I don't know if you've ever just like wandered onto a Scottish sheep farm. Maybe someone in the room has probably the sheep etologist. Um, but they're like massive, right? Like, I mean, this is like multiple miles of property, hundreds of acres, and it would cost someone's family fortune to put a fence all the way around it. So the question becomes like, how do you keep the sheep? Like, how do you actually keep them from wandering off into places that they shouldn't be or getting eaten by wolves or whatever? So the Scottish sheep farmers figured out that if you put a well at the middle of the piece of property that was intended to farm the sheep, that the sheep would never wander too far 
from that which gives them life. The, the sheep would not wander too far from the well. And it makes me think, what if we as Christians were more concerned with digging wells than putting up fences? What would it look like for us to say that we have a well and that well is Christ and anyone who wants to drink from that well can come to that well? Because I think so often a lot of us try to either put a fence around ourselves and kind of live some kind of like secluded life apart from everything just because we don't know how to handle things or we try to put a fence around our family or our friends or the church or I mean sometimes probably even putting a fence around Jesus himself and saying you know this isn't for everybody but in reality I see Jesus in John chapter 3 and chapter 4 with Nicodemus and the woman at the well being real intentional about the ways that he engages with broken people and I think that we're called to do the same thing so Uh, Rather than Jesus actually running away from culture, running away from broken people, I think that he invites them and says, come to me, all who are thirsty, all who are weary, and I will give you life. Which brings me to the point of of saying, what if if our ultimate missional impulse is the language that you use? I really like that. What if our ultimate missional impulse is meant to like dig a well and to say, Jesus, here and now, or to say, hey, we we have this well that we draw from every single week that we get to come to this space, we worship together in this room, and we take a pail of water from from the well, and we go out those doors and we pour it into the places that we live and that we work and that we play. I, I just think that the world would be a better place if we dug more wells and put up less fences. So the, the question that you ask in your head is, Brad, like, how do we do that? Like, what, what are the practical implications of that? Uh, again, like I said earlier, like Luke and I can help you to determine like your context or your missional calling, but we believe that everybody has a specific set of gifts and abilities that they, like that you people have the gift of the Holy Spirit to discern, right? Just like all of us in this room are uniquely imaging God. I think that we can't say that there's a one size fits all to, to faith, um, but again, I think that we can get toward an answer by, by going on another analogy, right? So go on a journey with me. You're standing by the White River, and of all things that could float by, a massive cow floats by, and then another cow, and then another cow, until there are dozens, hundreds of cows just perusing their way down the White River. You, as an innocent bystander, have three options. You can either ditch. Just get out of there as fast as you got in there. Two, you can, uh, you can uh, say, like, I'm going to exhaust all of my energy, all of my resources to pull one cow out of the river at a time, saving just one, and then you get exhausted, and sure enough, there's just hundreds of them going down the river. Well, the third option that you have is to go upstream and find the source, like who is putting these cows in the river in the first place? Right, and I think so many times in my life, I've, I've said, you know, option one, I'm just gonna ditch. I'm just gonna get out of there as quick as I can. I don't know if that's necessarily the right thing to do. Sometimes it might be the circumstance is right. I've also fallen subject to the second option of kind of being like, what do I do? Don't really feel confident about engaging in any way, but I guess I'll just like do one thing at a time, the next right thing, whatever. 
uh, when I think that Jesus is actually calling us to the third option of like finding brokenness, right? Finding brokenness in our cultures and the people around us and saying, how can I make you whole? How can I participate in your restoration? I, think, I don't think we ask that question enough. I think we're really quick to put fences up because whether it's fear or security, I'm talking for myself here. I think that we're easy to withdraw from those kinds of situations. Jesus actually used a very specific analogy for how we are to engage with the world and culture. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt only works if it's actually on food. It doesn't work if it stays in the salt shaker. Light only works if it pierces the darkness, right? Jesus calls us to be with broken people, to befriend broken people, to be, darkness, to, be, to be light in the darkness of their lives. And like Jesus also has done for us, right? Because we can't forget too that we are broken people, that we are sinners, always in constant need of saving. And I think that by doing these things, by participating in the restoration of Christ, by taking water from the well of Jesus to the well of the places that we live and that we work and that we play, I believe that we actually restore beauty and we create an alternative culture in some way. If this time is an alternative culture for us, which I, I believe that there's some kind of mysterious spirit-filled work that happens in this room every single week, I believe that we're called to take that work back out into the places that we came from, to pour that water into those wells. Mm, that's good. So um, I don't know about you, but I'm going to walk away with one very, very specific thing of how it's going to change how I live. I'm never going swimming in the White River. Anybody else? Okay. <laughs> um, so we've been asking this question, right? What, what's our responsibility? I asked, where do we draw the line? Brad said, what if it's not about drawing lines? What if it's less about building fences and more about digging wells, being salt and light, which means, yes, we're fundamentally different than the people around us, but we're also not far off. We have to be close, visible, touching the world. So still, practically, maybe you're asking the question, okay, but what about blank like what about what I let my kids wear or do on their cell phone or how we handle dating or voting or what media choices I'm allowing in my home or how do I budget or interact with my coworkers or structure our family calendar where do we embrace culture where do we reject it how do we connect with people and also challenge them when they need challenged like we said we can't give you a hands down answer up here but we would love to walk with you of course we'd always love to have conversations with you about what's going on in your life and how you can follow Jesus faithfully the prayer team's going to be around the edges of the room again, and we'd love, love, love to continue those conversations with you. But wherever you are, and without, however God may be calling you to engage the world around you, let me give you two nuggets of encouragement and wisdom from God's word as you process this. Here's encouragement number one. Drink from the right well. Drink from the right well. Now, there are a thousand wells that you could go drink from that will be presented to you by the world but don't settle for muddy water. Don't drink salt water 
and expect it to satisfy your thirst. Don't settle, settle for the shallow escapism and the cheap distractions that the world wants to offer you. Drink from the right well. Drink from God's goodness. Taste and see that he is good. He's the only thing that'll satisfy you. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Drink from the right well. Drink deeply of God's goodness. And that means like listen to good music and read a good book and take in a good sunset and drink a good hot cup of coffee on a cold morning and enjoy a good kiss from the person that you love and listen to the good laugh of a little child. Drink deeply from the well of God's goodness and let that shape your heart. Drink from the right well. And here's my second encouragement to you. Living water won't dry up. Living water won't dry up. It seems like when we have these conversations about what's going on in the world, about the relationship between Christ and culture and how we engage in the world around us, most often I hear those conversations happen with a tone of fear. With good Christians who are just deeply concerned about where our society is headed or about the world that our kids and grandkids are growing up in, and rightly so, but let me remind you, please, Living water won't dry up. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Jesus promises us that. Jesus is still the light of the world. And John chapter one says that the darkness shall not overcome it. Drink from the right well because living water won't dry up. As long as you are drinking from him, you have nothing to be afraid of. We're gonna be okay. Now, one of my spiritual heroes is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've heard his name or not. He was a, a German pastor and theologian in the early 1900s. He was actually executed in a concentration camp by the Nazis for his resistance to the Third Reich. And while he was in Nazi Germany, when he saw that a lot of the Christians were crumbling and he decided he needed to resist what was going on in their culture, he started a seminary. <laughs> Seems like a weird act of resistance, but that's what he did. Bonhoeffer said, I'm gonna start a seminary. I'm just gonna get this little group of people together and we're gonna take Jesus seriously so that we won't be corrupted by the Nazi propaganda. And so these students got together and they lived together and they drank deeply from the well of Jesus together. And so to outsiders who saw this little group of people together, it looked like this pretty intense life. They looked like kind of fanatics or they're reading their Bibles and they're studying God's word and they're praying and they're serving and they're living life in community and all this kind of spiritual activity and training. And one time, one of Bonhoeffer's friends came to visit the seminary and he saw the way they were living and how intense it was. And he said, Bonhoeffer, like, don't you think you should lighten up a little bit? Like, they're, they're kids, give them some leisure time, you know? And in response, Bonhoeffer simply took his friend out and they got on a rowboat together. And Bonhoeffer rowed him across the river. When they got to the other side of the river, they climbed up a hill. And from the top of the hill, they could look off in the distance and see an airfield. And there were Nazi fighter planes taking off and landing, massive bodies of troops moving around in these training exercises. And it was obvious that the Nazi war machine was incredibly effective at taking ordinary young men and transforming them into cold-blooded killers. Hitler was preparing for war against the world. And Bonhoeffer knew that if the kingdom of God was going to shine into that darkness, then he had to dig the well of the gospel so deeply in every human heart that they would refuse to drink the Nazi Kool-Aid. And so Bonhoeffer said to his friend, he said, you understand we can't let up. 
No, we're not gonna take it easy. And I know our spiritual training seems intense, but it's because this, he said, pointing to the cemetery, must be stronger than that, pointing to the airfield. This must be stronger than that. And they got back in the boat and they rowed back across the river in silence. Bonhoeffer had the audacity to think that a little seminary of a few dozen people drinking deeply of the beauty of Jesus could actually make a difference even in the middle of the Holocaust. And the crazy thing is, it did. This must be stronger than that. Back to your river analogy, Brad, it's been said before that a dead thing goes with the stream but only a living thing can swim against the stream. And if you are a person here this morning who says that you are a follower of King Jesus, then that means you're gonna be against the stream. You're gonna be different than the people around you. When you are living out a true and living faith, you're gonna budget differently, do vacations differently, do school differently and conversations and politics and marriage and conflict. You're gonna be different from the people around you because you're drinking from a different well. And as we do that, as we drink deeply from Jesus, little by little, we will be changed and our families will be changed and our neighborhoods will be changed and the world can be changed because they'll see Jesus. It's happened before. That's how the Roman Empire changed when just this little group of people got together and they lived out their faith. Acts chapter two in scripture describes what their life together was like. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common, They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This must be stronger than that. And so Brad, part of the reason that you're here joining the PCC family is that God has put this calling on your life to help his people drink from the well of Jesus. You wanna make this stronger than that because God has put this calling to help lead his people in worship. Tell us how that plays into all this. I think a lot of my understanding of worship recently after having been really complex and convoluted for a long time has just resorted back to the simplicity of the passage that Luke just read. Acts chapter two kind of paints a really simple and a beautiful picture of what the church looks like when it's functioning well, when all of its mechanisms and systems are all in sync with one another. I mean, they they hear the word of God taught, they break bread and eat together, they pray together, they're in fellowship and true community with one another, having all their possessions in common. And I think that I spent a lot of my life thinking that worship Um, what happens in this space is what I mean, not just the music, worship, the gathering, uh, was something that we came to every week. And I think that over time, I've come to the realization that worship is not something that we come to, but that we're sent from, right? Like this place and this time that we have every single week is the opportunity for us to come and tap into the living water, into the well of Christ, and to take a bucket and to go back out into the world, to pour it, to be sent back out. We were never meant to come and to stay in this room. We were always meant to come and to go from this room. I would love for you to get your communion elements that you received when you walk in ready. We're gonna receive 
this gift together. Friends, this is stronger than that. This is stronger than that. You may have heard the phrase, you are what you eat. I believe that that is true, right? Especially with the amount of things that we're, we're given to eat. Sometimes our bodies feel more weary or tired based on what we eat or drink. And sometimes our bodies feel like they're functioning well uh, if we eat healthy. But what I'm talking about in this time is beyond that, right? That like by eating this bread and this juice, we become mysteriously something beyond ourselves, that we're transformed mysteriously more into the likeness and the character and the postures and the priorities of Jesus Christ who gave us this meal because this is stronger than that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread and having given thanks and blessed it and broke it, he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So friends, we receive the body of Christ together. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup and having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, take, drink, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So we receive the cup now together. Through this bread and through this cup, we're invited into an alternative way of being that actually makes us more like Christ. And as we prepare to be sent from this place, I pray that that sticks, right? That we would carry, I mean, our bodies, now that we've ingested bread and juice, carry it with us, but that, that would carry with us spiritually and mentally as we go into the places to pour the water of Christ into the wells of culture. Yeah.